She's a member of our class, but she had to leave uh, immediately to go somewhere else because she's doing some research on atheism for a program that she's doing. Uh, we got an announcement uh, this morning from uh, Claudette Grace, and uh, Raymond's back in the hospital. And he stumbled, I think, and uh, he's disoriented somewhat, and so anyway, she asked us to remember Raymond, and uh, she's not sure what the situation is. I don't know whether he's just disoriented, whether he may have another, have another minor stroke, but we're not sure on that. Anyway. Uh, also, I wanted to mention that the new Criswell Theological Review was sent out this past week, and it is on national politics. And the lead article is written by Dr. Barry Hankins from Baylor University, a major historian. And what he does is he says the, the issue that he deals with in this article is on sex and religion in presidential politics. And he asked the question, when did religion and sex become such big issues in political politics? And except for Al Smith, who was Catholic, and JFK, who was religious, I mean, who was uh, also Catholic, religion never played a big place in electing a president. In other words, you didn't ask about uh, FDR, what his religion was, and all that. They didn't probe into all that. They certainly didn't probe into his sexual affairs, but there was a point in American history when those two issues became uh, essential for uh, a man or a woman, before they ran for president, they had to deal with those things. So anyway... It's a great article, and I think you'll like to read that. So if uh, you're not a subscriber and you want to get a copy of that, if you'll see me, we'll arrange that for you. Okay, let's take our Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 14. And if you're a guest with us, we are glad you're here. Someone just told me that uh, with the kind of guest we have in our class today, our class IQ just went up 10, 10 points. So I think that might be the case. I don't know if that's true or not. But... Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, we are in Luke chapter 14, and uh, last week we saw that Jesus was eating at the home of a Pharisee, and he did very extensive teaching in that individual's home. And now he's finished that meal, and he's back on the road, heading towards Jerusalem, where he will face death. It is a journey that he began all the way back in chapter 9 and verse 51, and Luke picks up on that journey beginning in verse 25. So look at Luke 14, verse 25. And here's what it says. Now great multitudes went with him, meaning toward Jerusalem. And everywhere Jesus goes, he has these crowds that flock to him. He's like a rock star in, in a way. Uh, these people who are following him 40 or 50 or 60 miles down the road toward Jerusalem, uh, some of them are hecklers. They're not his friends, they're hecklers. Some are curiosity seekers. Some are people who think he might be the Messiah, they're not sure, but they're interested in discovering what he has to say. Few of them are disciples, and so we have this tremendous multitude. When it says a multitude, we're probably talking about you know a few thousand people just following him. And we, we've seen in previous weeks that sometimes the crowds were so great that they hindered his ministry. They got in the way. And so this crowd follows him, and so he feels this urgency, and he turns, look at the end of verse 25, and he speaks to them, and he says, if anyone comes to me, 
and does not hate his father and his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, in these two verses, Jesus is describing the kind of commitment that it takes to be one of his followers, what he determines, what he calls a disciple. And he gives two requirements. He gives one requirement in verse 26, where he says, hate his father and his mother and so on. And then he gives one requirement in verse 27, where he calls it bearing the cross, which we'll look at in a moment. But I want you to notice that these two verses have, two, have several things in common. Okay? First of all, I want you to notice how these verses end. Look how verse 26 ends. He cannot be my disciple. He doesn't meet that requirement. Look how verse 27 ends. He cannot be my disciple. So we see that he is talking about requirements to be a follower of his. And he's using it in negative terms. If you don't do these things, you cannot be, you cannot be my disciple. Also, I want you to notice how these two verses have, and these requirements I might have, have universal application. Look how verse 26 opens. If anyone, that means you, that means me. If anyone, look how verse 27 opens. And whosoever, whosoever, these requirements to be a disciple include every single person. No one is accepted. And then look at the negative way that Jesus speaks in verse 26. If anyone comes after me and does not, does not what? Hades father, mother, wife, children, brother, sister, yes, his own life cannot be my disciple. Notice the negative again in verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross cannot be my disciple. Now let's look at these two requirements. What does it mean in verse 26? Hate Father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, his own life. Now, the simple way would be if you don't put Christ first. And then you can't be his disciple. That's a nice, simple way of saying it. Okay? But I don't think that that really plums the depths of what this requirement is. Uh, you will remember last week and we've talked about this for several weeks, Jesus has been talking about class status. Remember that? And one of the ways that you gained class status through what's called the patronage system was by the people you ate with. If you ate with certain people, then you gained status. If you did a good thing for one person who was above you in social status, that raised you up to their class as well. And last week, Jesus talked about who to invite to dinner. Remember that? If you were here, you'll remember that. And if you look back at verse 12 of chapter 14, look what it says. Then he said to him who invited him, he says to the host of this dinner, when you give a dinner... Or a supper. Do not. Look at this. Ask your friends, your, rel your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they invite you back and you get repaid. See, this is what people were doing. They were 
having these meals, which determine your class. Remember we talked about where you sit at tables and who invites you to the meal, and if you're on the A list or you're on the B list. And then, in return, when you're invited to a meal, you have to invite people back. And Jesus said, don't invite these kinds of people to the meal, because they'll just invite you to the back. Now, I'm going to have my son over to dinner tonight. See? And I'm going to have another couple over tonight. Now, these are people I hang around with normally. Normally. And these people have invited me to dinner before. That's the way we do things. That's being human. But that's not being a disciple. Jesus said, you have to break with that system. And who did he say you were to invite to meals? Remember from last week? The lame, the blind, the halt, the deaf, the down and outers, people who can't pay you back. So when Jesus says, if you don't hate your mother and brothers and relatives, he's saying, you need to break with that system. Don't, don't follow these, the rules of status. Don't follow this patronage system where everything you do determines your value. Uh, June Hunt was just talking about she thought she had to do certain things in order to be accepted and be valued, and that's how we operate. Jesus says, you need to break with that. You have to hate that world system. That's the way the world operates. Who does Jesus accept? Yeah, he accepts everybody. You have to hate this tit-for-tat type situation. And don't put any, um, even yourself, he says, don't put any stock in who you are. You have to hate yourself. You say, well, I come from this certain class of people. I live here. I, my name is this. That's exactly what he's talking about. He's just carrying this over from last week. And so you have to break with that status-seeking mindset of what is important, where you live, what kind of labels you have on your coats, you know, who invites you to this place, who invites you to that. And that's what Jesus is talking about again right here, I think. And then in verse 27, look what he said. He said, and whoever does not bear his cross. See, now, in verse 26, when Jesus said, hate your father, mother, brother, and sister, Everybody would have understood that. We don't understand it today, what that means. They hate people. They, but they understood it meant status. Now, in verse 27, he says, and if you do not bear your cross, you can't be my disciple. And you know, everybody that heard that knew exactly what he was talking about, and we have no idea. Oh, we have a cross to bear. Yeah. <laughs> no, everybody that uh, heard him say, bearing the cross, one thing came to your mind. It was a picture of a person with a crossbar over their shoulder, bearing the weight of it as they were led down the city streets to the place where they would be executed. So when Jesus says, unless you are willing to bear your cross, guess what he's painting a picture of? A person who's going to their execution. A person who is going to their death. You have to be willing to go to your death for Christ. You need to be willing to break with the whole world system, and then, in return, you should expect people to persecute you just like they did Jesus. Who did Jesus eat with? Did he reject his mothers and his brothers? I think he did. See, all he's asking you to do is the same thing that he did when his mother and his brothers came. He said, well, who's my mother and my brother? 
I'm not known by my last name. My mothers and my brothers are those who do the will of God. And you know, that can be a down and out as well as an up and out. See, he breaks with that system. He, the Pharisees want him to have him for dinner. But when he got there, he preached to them. They didn't like that. He said, look who he invited to dinner. Why don't you go out and invite somebody who can't pay you back? Well, what did they do when he said all that? They turned on him. Where did that end up? It ended up with Jesus being put on a cross. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, you want to follow me. When you follow me, you know where it leads? Right to a cross. You have to be willing to die. You have to be willing to give everything up. Now, if you consider yourself dead already, as if right now you are marching with a crossbar toward your execution. In other words, you've already been condemned, you've already been judged, death is a sure thing, and you consider yourself dead right now. Guess what? Who you invite to your next meal is not too important. You're more concerned about your last meal. Hey, by the way, Jesus had a last meal. He only had it with those disciples that actually followed him all the way to Jerusalem. And you're not concerned about possessions when you face death. All that means absolutely nothing. Status means absolutely nothing. So what Jesus is saying, you have to break with this entire system. That's the cost to be his disciple. Now, he illustrates. He gives us two illustrations. Look at illustration number one. Starts in verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost? You do a cost analysis. How much is it going to cost me to build this building? Whether he has enough to, look, finish it. Notice there's a start. You want to build a tower. But before you build the tower, you have to determine whether you have enough funds and resources to finish it. Okay? Lest after he has laid the foundation, verse 29, and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build. And he wasn't able to finish. Now what Jesus here is talking about is counting the cost. But he's not talking about building a building. He's talking about being his disciple. It's not enough to start out like they are on the journey with him to Jerusalem. They're starting out. He says, you need to think about can you finish this walk? It's not enough to say I'm a disciple and start off as a disciple. You have to end up as a disciple. And that's going to be very costly. What's it going to cost? Abandon the whole status system, which we were just talking about. All the cultural standards and seeing yourself dead already. That's what you have to do up front, up front. Because if you don't do that up front, you know what's going to happen? You won't finish the course as a disciple. You will abandon being a disciple. Because a person comes to Christ, and here they are, let's say that they are of another religion. Maybe they're Muslim. Maybe it's a Christian religion. 
Maybe they're Catholic. Uh, maybe they're Jewish. Uh, maybe they're Mormon. And they come to Christ. And they say, I want to be baptized. And the Catholic parent says, baptized? The Mormon parent says, baptized? The Jewish father says, I'm cutting you out of my will. You see that? You see the cost? You have to be willing to give all that up. And count yourself dead already because you have to do that up front. Because if you don't, you won't be able to follow Jesus and be his disciple. Now that's what he's describing here. And he's using a building. Now, I know a little bit about not completing a building. Because several years ago, in fact, people who don't complete buildings, I was remember this just from uh, something that I was reading years ago. The word folly used to be connected to buildings that were half-finished. Anybody remember that? <coughs> Building that was half-finished and never got to be used for what it was intended for, it became known as, like, let's say I built a building and I couldn't do it, they would call it streets folly, because there's a half of a building sitting there. <laughs> never, and they would just add that word folly. They put you, the person's name was going to build it, and then the word folly. So it would be called streets folly. And every time somebody walked, walked by, they go, oh, <laughs> that guy was so stupid he tried to build a building for just a few bucks and never got it built. He didn't count the cost. Well, at Criswell College, that seven years ago, we built a building, or we bought a building, right across the street from the school. It was a tower. It was a medical building. And we could pick that thing up for one million bucks. And so the college bought it. Now, I didn't have a decision on this. This isn't called streets folly. I always want you to know that. But the college bought that thing, and they said, we will turn it into dorms, and next semester all of our students will have dorms. It's been sitting empty for over six years. It is an absolute folly. Because we didn't count the cost. We didn't realize that it was going to cost another $11 million to finish it out. So it just sits there, totally empty. Now, could we have used that million bucks on something else? In fact, I think we spent more than that just cleaning it out and things like that. So that was an absolute folly. So every time I ride by the school, every morning when I go to school, my eyes go to that tower, and it's sitting there empty. And every time I said, isn't that disgusting? That <laughs> just gripes me to no end that we have this empty building just sitting right there. Now Jesus says the same thing about being a disciple. Many people want to say, want to be a disciple, but guess what? They don't count the cost up front. So that's what Jesus is talking about. Now he gives a second illustration. Look at verse 31. He says, or what king, now this is very pertinent for our day, what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends out a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. In other words, if you can't win a war, don't get into the war. 
Well, how do you know if you can win a war? You better count all your resources. How many men do we have? How much money do we have? How much equipment do we have? How much will do we have? Because if you get into a war and you can't win it, it's worse than folly. <laughs> That's tragedy because there are going to be thousands of lives lost. We saw that in Vietnam, didn't we? Mm -hmm. We got into a war that we didn't have the resolve to finish. See? So, and we always say, well, Vietnam is the only war we've ever lost. Because we didn't count costs. Miscalculate. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. He said, you're better off just the king, when a war is going to happen, just go out and make a deal with the other side. Don't even try to fight the war if you don't have the resources. Now, here's the bottom line. Look at verse 33. So likewise, whosoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, do you notice the parallel between verse 33 and verses 26 and 27? Notice how verse 33 ends. Cannot be my disciple. Look how verse 27 ends. Cannot be my disciple. Look how verse 26 ends. Cannot be my disciple. Now, look at verse 33. Likewise, whosoever of you does not, what? Forsake all he, what? Has. Now, that word forsake explains what the word hate in verse 26 means, and what bear the cross in verse 27 means. What does it mean to hate your family and your friends? And What does it mean to bear your cross? It means to what? Forsake. Forsake is what that means. You, you give up. You abandon all that that's linked to that social status and desire to save your life. You have to forsake that. In fact... In verse 33 it says, unless you do not forsake, look at this, all that he, what? Has. All that he has. Look, let me read, you didn't hear that one. See, that's another one you didn't hear. Unless you forsake all that you have, now what part of the word all don't you know, and what part of the word have don't you know? Unless you forsake all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Now, I think in the context, it's your social status. You have to be willing to let that go. You may have to be willing to... How about your resources? See, that's why I think Jesus said it was hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom. Because it's hard for a rich person to forsake what they have. But we saw earlier, what did Jesus say that the rich person was to do? And not just the rich person, anybody. Remember what he said? Sell all you have and give it to the poor. Do you see how it, it's consistent? Now, isn't this hard? See, I don't like Luke. Do you? <laughs> but it must be forsaken. Um, it doesn't say it has to be all forsaken at the second. I mean, there's a lot, lot, lot in here that you can unpack. But I don't want to do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. See, Jesus didn't unpack it all for his disciples. He didn't say, and by the way, that means A, B, C, D, and E for you, Peter. X, Y, Z, Thomas. He just, he says it, and guess what? He lets it just sort of sink in. 
But we have to, what is it that is standing in our way? What is it that could draw us away from Christ and back into the system if the going got rough? Would it be losing an inheritance? Would it be, you know, saving our life? Well, we're going to kill you if you follow Christ. Well, then I'll just denounce Christ. See, what is it that you have to, are you willing to forsake your own life? So you have to decide that. But that's what Jesus is saying there. Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. That is hard, hard saying right there. In fact, there are books called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Because uh, when you read them, they're really hard sayings. Okay, now let's look at verse 34. It's very interesting. Because what he's going to do now, he's going to now make an analogy. And this is the analogy of a person who says they want to be a disciple, but they're not really willing to forsake it all. Okay, here's the analogy. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men throw it out. So, first illustration, power. It starts to get built, and guess what? Don't even finish it. What good is it? Good for nothing. Good for nothing. You go to a war and you can't win it. What good was it going to war? It was good for what? Absolutely nothing. And now here's salt. And salt that has lost its flavor. What's it good for? It's good for nothing. That's what he's saying right here. It's good for nothing. It's not good for meat. It's not good for ground. It's not good for anything. Now, what I think is happening here is that Jesus is taking this salt type concept. He says salt is good, but if it's lost its flavor, it's no good. It's because it's not doing what it was intended to do. Salt is intended to preserve. Salt is intended to flavor. And if it's lost its saltiness, it's not doing what it was meant to do. Now, I think we've seen this concept before. Now, watch this very carefully, okay? I want you to look over at Luke 8. It's the same thing Jesus said about the four soils. You remember that? The parable of the soils. Now, if you look at verse chapter 8, is it chapter 8? Let's see. And look at verse, is it? Okay, and chapter 8 and verse 5, okay? He says, a sower went out and sowed his seed. Now watch this. I'm going to do something for you here. Seed is good. Now we just said salt was good. I'm going to just do the Seed is good. Okay? Now watch. Goes out and sows seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. And it was trampled down, and the birds devoured it. Was the seed doing what it was supposed to do? Never got to do what it was supposed to do, which was to bring up a harvest. Didn't succeed in fulfilling its intended purpose. Short-lived, short-lived, short-lived. Now watch this. 
Some fell on the rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Did it do what it was intended to do? No. no. Short-lived. Some fell among the thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground and sprang up and yielded a crop of a hundredfold. So here we see that only one of the four seeds accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. All the others fell short. Now think about a tower that never gets built. Think about a war that's never executed properly. And think about salt that falls short and loses its flavor and can't accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. Now look what Jesus says at the end of verse 8. When he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's saying, learn this lesson. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now turn back over to Luke 14. And look how Jesus ends verse 35 about the salts thrown out by men. Look how it ends verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Same thing, because it's the same lesson. If the salt has lost its flavor, it's not doing what it intended to do. Now watch this. You can say, I'm a disciple. But if you don't do what Jesus says, guess what? You're not a disciple. I'm salt! Oh. You're salt. Well, let me taste you. Oh, there's no salting there. No saltiness there. You might say you're salt, but you're what? Worthless. Yeah, you're worthless. You're not salt. He who has an ear, let him hear. There are requirements that you have to be willing to forsake certain things to be a follower of Jesus and fulfill your role as a follower of Jesus. He who has ears, let him hear. And I want to show you something very interesting. This is for next week, but watch this. Look at chapter 15 and verse 1, the very next verse. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to what? Look who's hearing. Let him who has ears hear, and guess who wants to hear? Tax collectors. Sinners. They want to hear. They draw up to listen. But look at verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes, people who invited the same kind of people to dinner all the time, status people, complain. They had no desire to hear anything. They just complained. Look at this. And then they just spoke. This man receives what? And what else does he do with them? Ah, you see how it all fits together from all these different weeks of Inland Dealing? He not only welcomes sinners, we would never do that, people of our class and stature, and he eats with sinners. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, let me ask you, which one of those two groups in verses 1 or 2 actually here. I would say it's the tax collectors and sinners, and guess what? Therefore, because they are eligible to become disciples of Jesus, and guess who's eliminated from becoming disciples of Jesus? 
the Pharisees who want to maintain the status and would refuse to eat with someone like a sinner or a tax collector. See, it's absolutely amazing. Once you see what the passage means, it becomes absolutely amazing. So then what Jesus will do in chapter 15, he will tell three parables. The parable of a lost sheep, a parable of a lost coin, and a parable of a lost son. And that par those parables are built on the statement of the Pharisees. He receives sinners and he eats with them. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you three stories. And each one of these stories is a parable that points to the fact, guess what? God does the same thing. He accepts sinners. And he eats with sinners. And each one of these sinners in chapter 15, they have something in common. It says they repent. They repent. And there's joy in heaven over one sinner who what? And that's how all these chapters here fit together. Is that you have to be willing, unlike the Pharisees, you have to be willing to just give it all up. Stop the pretense. Realize that we're all sinners before God. <laughs> guess what? Compared to God, we're all in a different class. And guess what God does? He calls us to himself. He embraces us. He says, but you need to be willing to give it up. And he just accepts us and he embraces us and ultimately in his kingdom we sit at his table and we eat. And the people who are in that kingdom, tax collectors and sinners, oh, there may be a Pharisee or two. There'll be some rich people, but they're people who weren't, who were willing to let go and didn't have to hold on. People who didn't care for their lives but counted themselves Dead. So that's where we'll pick up next week in chapter 15 and verse 1. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's a probing word. It's a word for us. It's a word for each person in this room who has influence. And each person in this room who values his or her station in life. We would not want to go down the social economic ladder. We like where we are, and we're always moving upward. Help us to realize, Lord, that that's not essential to gain your acceptance. And even in our society, if that's what it takes to gain acceptance from certain people, that's not what you require. You require us to be willing to give it up. And all the resources that you have placed at our disposal as stewards, Lord, help us to realize that we shouldn't be holding on to it. We don't own it. You've given it to us as a stewardship to be used for your kingdom. So, Lord, help us to look at our possessions and say, how can we advance the kingdom through everything that you've given us? Oh, Lord, help us to be able to say we're disciples and rightly identify ourselves as such. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.